time I, uh, I get to have the joy and the pleasure to invite uh, Christopher uh, Lamosky to come up and to, to, to share this morning. If for those that don't know, just over the last couple of years, got to know his heart and his love for the Lord. So just excited for the message he's going to bring. And uh, why don't you come on up and just uh, join me in welcoming Christopher to come and share for us this morning. Thank you. I'm honored to be able to preach this morning. Um, and to give John some great time with his family and uh, some time to, to rest up at the lake house. Would you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our passage today is going to be in the book of Matthew, and we'll be starting in chapter 16, verse 24, and we'll be going through chapter 17, verse 8. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what good will it do a person if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Or what will a person give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay each person according to his deeds." Truly, I say to you, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun and his garments became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking to them. Peter responded and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you want, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell down on the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And raising their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. If you're like me, or probably most Christians, you're probably not quite sure what to make of Jesus' transfiguration atop the mountain. It can feel kind of like that miscellaneous aisle in the grocery store, the one that we usually just pass over. For me, that's the aisle with all of the personal care and paper goods. Sure, I might need to go down it once in a while, but what I've really come to the grocery store for is the food, and specifically the ice cream. 
When it comes to the transfiguration, we probably understand if we've been in church for a while that it's one of those pivotal events in Jesus's life alongside his incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection, even his ascension into heaven. But how does it fit in with the rest? Just as importantly, how does Jesus's transfiguration on that faraway mountain 2,000 years ago have to do with us? So today, let's take a stroll down this neglected aisle so that we might clearly understand why this incredible event is in our Bibles and what it has to do with us as the people of God. Before we jump into this passage for today, it's worth asking a simple question, which you might already be asking, which is, what is the transfiguration? What does it mean? So you can see up here on the screens, um, it comes from the Greek word metamorphose, which is the noun And what we have in this passage is the passive verb, which you see in your Bibles as to be be transformed or to be transfigured. Now, I think it's important to distinguish these two terms, transfiguration and transformation. They're the same word in Greek from metamorphose. But the reason we call it the transfiguration when it happens to Jesus is because It's to distinguish it from the transformation that happens to us as believers through the Holy Spirit. What changes for Jesus is not who who he is. What changes is his outward appearance. Whereas for believers who are transformed in the Holy Spirit, it is a change of identity. It's who you are that's actually changing. But even still, Jesus' transfiguration on the outside has everything to do with our transformation on the inside, from the inside out through the Holy Spirit. But I'm getting ahead of myself because before we consider what the transfiguration has to do with us, we need to consider what it tells us about Jesus. So in Matthew's account of the transfiguration alongside Mark's and Luke's, there are three parts we must understand three parts and that's the vision the visitors and I gotta remember the last one the voices so the vision the visitors and the voices so first let's take a look at the vision I use the word vision because it's the word that Jesus uses for his transfiguration in chapter 17 verse 9 but I want to be clear by vision I do not mean that what the disciples saw was not real or was a a dream or a hallucination or anything of that sort. On the contrary, the disciples are seeing something that is very real about Jesus. In fact, they're seeing him possibly more clearly than ever before. We can go ahead and, and look at this next slide here on what I mean by vision. What I mean simply in this case is seeing someone or something for who or what it truly is. The disciples are seeing Jesus for who he truly is. I think this is what the Apostle Peter, who, if you remember, is one of those who's present on the mountain with Jesus, what he tells us in his second letter when he reflects on this very moment. We can see that on the next slide from 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18. 
And he says, for we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. So what is this vision of? In verse 1, we are told that Jesus takes three of his disciples, uh, Peter, James, and his brother John, who together are known as the sons of thunder, which is fun to imagine why that might be. Now, much has been written about what mountain this might have been. Some think it's Uh, Mount Horeb or Sinai um, or something like that. The Bible doesn't tell us. I don't think it really matters because what really matters is that when Jesus reaches the top of the mountain, his appearance changes drastically. His face, we are told, becomes bright like the sun and his clothing as white as light. Mark adds the detail that his clothes are wider than any load of laundry could ever make it. We really have to use our imagination just to understand how beautiful and terrifying this vision must have been. Now, I'm a big fan of of Eastern Orthodox icons, so we'll we'll put one up on the screen just to help uh, our imagination here. I love how... um, I. I'm not sure who it is, but I think I imagine it to be John who's on the right side, who's just totally cowering in fear of the glorious and majestic uh, presence of Christ here on the mountain. And then you can see we have Elijah and Moses who are on his left and right. So we can leave that up while we, while we continue here. But we're still left asking the question, What in the world is going on in this vision? And and what does the transfiguration tell us about Jesus? So I want to remind us first of something that has been um, long upheld by scripture in the tradition. And so let me ask you, we have Jesus the person. How many natures does Jesus have? Two, yeah, thanks, Caitlin. Two natures, yeah. Jesus has two natures, God, divine, and human. Two natures. And I think this is important because we are told that Jesus, he is, he is both the son of God, and he's also the son of Mary, the baby born in Bethlehem. He is 100% God and 100% man. And you might be wondering, why, why does this matter? This just sounds like technical theology. But I, what I want us to hear is that given this, what we see in the transfiguration is nothing less than God revealing Jesus' true identity as the eternal Son of God. He is not just a mere man. He is the God-man. In this vision of blinding lights and shimmering garments, the disciples are seeing nothing less than Jesus' glory as the eternal Son of God. When was the last time that you saw a glimpse of God's glory? 
In this passage here today, three of Jesus' disciples are blessed with this incredible vision of God the Son in his glory. I know for a fact from speaking with many of you that you've had such moments, powerful moments of God's glory in your life. Maybe it was the hour that you first believed, that you first knew that Jesus had forgiven your sins. Maybe it was at a camp or a retreat when you were reassured of God's presence with you in your life. Maybe it was in a quiet moment in creation as you looked out at the hills and saw the sun rising and were reminded that God's mercies are new every day. Even as I speak, there is a powerful work of God happening on many universities and churches across the country right now, including at Samford University here, where people's hearts are being broken over their sin, who are turning to God as their only hope and praising him continuously as their savior. Such powerful glimpses of the glory of God, like the transfiguration, are wonderful gifts from God. They're things to be remembered and cherished and told. But I think more often than not, Jesus' bright, shining face is obscured from us. More often than not, we're just trying to keep up with work or school or raising kids. And while we know that there are many negative distractions that are vying for our attention, I think sometimes it's just life with all of its ordinary and important responsibilities that seem to keep us occupied. It's studying for that test, cleaning the house after it's long overdue, if you're anything like our our household. It's rushing to get the kids dressed for church. The good news is that Jesus Christ was equally the eternal Son of God when he went down the side of that mountain and the light began to fade from his face. The glory of God had not departed from the disciples because Jesus was still with them. Do we believe that the glory of God is revealed to us also in these ordinary moments of life? Do we believe that the Holy Spirit is moving amidst us even during the hustle and bustle of our busy lives? The promise of this passage is that God is with us, whether we can see his glory or not. But even still, God invites us in faith to open our eyes in these ordinary moments to see what God might be up to. And we just might catch a glimpse of his glory. So first, we had the vision. Second, we need to take a look at the visitors. We are told in verse 3 of Matthew 17 that Moses and Elijah appear on the mountain and are talking with Jesus. Now, if you're like me, you might be asking, why of all the people in the Old Testament would these two be the candidates elected for this very special moment with Jesus? I think the most basic answer, and we can see this on the next slide, is that Moses and Elijah together represented the whole of the Old Testament witness. 
Moses had come to be the chief person that was associated. We'll, we'll get to that in a moment. Moses had, had come to be the, the chief person associated with the law, and Elijah, the chief person with the prophets. So that is to say that the perfect fulfillment of all the Old Testament, of all of the hopes and dreams of Israel, was fulfilled here in Jesus Christ, as you have Elijah and Moses standing before him. Jesus is the one that Israel had been desperately longing for, their Messiah, their Savior. I love how this comes out in one of my favorite Christmas hymns, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And just to read one of the verses here, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. By Moses and Elijah showing up on the mountain, it's as if God is announcing the time has finally arrived. The Son of God is now with you, and that changes everything. But there's another reason why I think it's important that Moses and Elijah are up on the mountain with Jesus. Both of these guys have already had important mountaintop experiences with God. If we look back at Exodus 34 in the Old Testament, we learn that Sometime after the people of God, Israel, had rejected him and worshipped the golden calf in the desert, a worn out and frustrated, even angry Moses ascends up onto Mount Sinai to speak with the Lord. In the previous chapter, he had begged God, show me your glory. And the Lord replied that his glory indeed would pass by, but Moses would not be able to see his face. We can go ahead to the next slide here. Excellent. So as Moses cowers in the cleft of the rock, the Lord passes by and the Lord speaks his holy name in these words. The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. This is, by the way, excuse me, this is, by the way, uh, the verse in the Bible that's most quoted by the Bible itself. So if you're ever looking for a good memory verse, Exodus 34, 6 through 7 is a great place to start. God assures Moses at this point that he will be with him, that he will be with his people even though they are a wicked generation. And what's amazing is we're told that after Moses comes down the mountain, His face, the skin of his face is shining, bright with light. The people are actually so afraid of him that he has to put a veil over his face, except for when he goes into the tent of meeting where he talks to God. Okay, so that's Moses. What about Elijah? Well, Elijah has 
two back-to-back mountaintop experiences with one very low valley in between. The first mountain is where he challenges the prophets of Baal, and God sends mighty fire down from heaven, which completely consumes his sacrifice. At this point, the people see this, and they repent, they return to God, and they kill the prophets of Baal. But because of this, Jezebel, who's the wife of the evil king Ahab, threatens Elijah's life. He wisely makes a run for it and travels through the desert until he finally arrives at Mount Horeb, which is the same mountain as Mount Sinai where Moses had met with the Lord. You might remember what happened at this point. As Elijah stands at the entrance of a cave in the mountain, his face covered up completely with a cloak. The Lord sends a mighty wind, an earthquake, and a fire. But it is not until Elijah hears that small, quiet voice that God speaks to him. Amidst Elijah's discouragement, what is probably the lowest point of his life, God speaks words of comfort. He assures them that there are still 7,000 faithful Israelites in the land. And he sends them off to take up Elisha, I get confused, but Elijah takes up Elisha as his companion and successor. So again, why does it matter that Moses and Elijah, who had these powerful mountaintop experiences with God, are now speaking on this mountain with Jesus, shining in all of his glory? Remember that for both of them in their earlier mountaintop experiences, they had heard the voice of God, but they hadn't been able to see his face. God had covered up with his hand Moses so he could only see the back of him, and Elijah had wrapped his head in a cloak. But here they are now, talking to Jesus, face to face. The very God who spoke to Moses and Elijah on the mountain so long ago is this man, Jesus, with whom they now speak. Because God the Son left his heavenly home and put on flesh to enter into this fallen, broken world of ours, we too, like Moses and Elijah, have access to our sovereign, almighty God. We can go to the next slide. There's a verse from 2 Corinthians 3.18 where Paul is thinking about just this. Paul writes, We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. This verse is as densely packed with truth as it is beautiful. And I think the first beautiful truth that we need to hear is that, like Moses, who had to wear the veil over his face, except for when he went to talk with the Lord, we too, through knowing and loving Jesus, we live with unveiled faces. To see Jesus is to see clearly. It is to gain a glimpse of glory. 
It is to contemplate the glory of God at work in our lives through the Holy Spirit. But there's more, because not only are we invited to contemplate God's glory, but to know Jesus and to put our faith in him is to be transformed. Do you remember the meaning of the word metamorphoso from the beginning? It's transformed. It's the same word, transfigured or transformed. And the good news is that when we unite ourselves to Jesus, when we take on his easy yoke, when we follow him, we are being being transformed, as it says in the passage, from glory to glory through the Holy Spirit. This is what it means to be sanctified. This is what it means to be filled with holy love for God and our neighbor. It's not only something to be experienced for ourselves, but it's also a call to action, a call to service and costly compassion. We are filled with the light of Christ so that that light might spill out into the lives of others. We are the light of the world. As Jesus commands his disciples in Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The good news of the transfiguration is that even as we gain a glimpse of God's glory, we also gain a glimpse of the glory given us as we allow the Father to conform us to the image of the Son through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and our lives. I'm tempted to end right there, and perhaps you wish that I did, but the problem is the passage doesn't. There's one more thing that we must understand. And this is a good thing, because alongside the promise that Christ is with us and transforming us, we know also that life is messy. We're sinners. We suffer and we're daily plagued by all manner of trial and tribulations. What is the good news for us in the midst of these times? For the times that we feel trapped in our sin, the lust of our eyes, our gossiping mouths, our feet that are slow to come to the help of our brothers and sisters. Or for the times that we anxiously pace back and forth in a waiting room. When your wayward child seems to not want to do anything with you. When you're called into your boss's office and it's not for a promotion. For the times we feel exhausted by life's responsibilities or shot through with grief or assailed by the temptations of the enemy, what is the good news for such times? The good news is that amidst this vision with its visitors, we hear voices. Now, the first voice doesn't seem like good news. It's the voice of Peter with his awkward comment, Lord, if it, it's good for us to be here. If you want, I will set up a, a shelter, a tent. One for you, one for Elijah, and one for Moses. 
Peter, who is bold and impulsive and always has something to say. In fact, in the last chapter, he was the first one to answer Jesus' question, but who do you say I am? And he gave the right answer there. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Starting in verse 21 of, of that chapter, chapter 16, Jesus begins to explain to his disciples that he would suffer and that he would be killed. And on the third day, he would rise again. Again, Peter is the first one to respond. And it's with a firm rebuke, saying, No way, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Jesus responds with an even firmer rebuke, saying, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance, because you are not thinking of the concerns of God, but the concerns of man. Peter knows that Jesus is the Messiah. He knows that he is the Son of God, but he's still struggling to understand just what that means. He probably thought, like most devout Jews of the time, that the Messiah would be a great military leader who would unite Israel to overcome their oppressors. For the Messiah to suffer and die was completely out of the picture. Suffering meant surrender. Death meant defeat. I think that we too, like Peter, can be slow to understand who God is and what he is doing among us during times of suffering and death in our lives. It's for this reason that we, like Peter, need to hear the next voice. This is the voice from heaven that thankfully interrupts Peter as he's going on and on about camping. A great cloud, we're told, overshadows them, and a voice comes from that cloud, declaring, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Why are the disciples called to listen to Jesus? What is he saying that they must hear? What is he saying that we must hear today? I think it's that surrounding this, pas this passage, we hear not once, not twice, but three times that Jesus is going to suffer, that he's going to die, and that he's going to be raised again on the third day. The good news is that Jesus does not stay on the mountain, but he descends with his disciples, and without looking back, he makes his way for another mountain called Calvary, where he will die and pour out his life for the life of the world. He does not despise the cross, but he willingly takes on its shame, knowing that his death would bring about the redemption of all creation, including you and me. When we unite ourselves to Christ in faith, we not only are united in his glory, we also share in his sufferings and his death. For when we are united to Christ in his death, it means that our old self our sin, our flesh, is put to death with him. As he commands his disciples in chapter 16, verse 4, if anyone wants to come after me, 
He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Peter learned this the hard way. This is the Peter who denied Christ three times in his moment of greatest need. And yet this is also the Peter who by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ became the great apostle, preacher, and pastor in the early church. We can see on on the next slide here the Peter who writes in his his second letter or his first letter, Dear friends, do not be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you. As if something unusual were happening to you, Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. Peter is telling us what God had shown him. He's telling us that when we are united into Christ's sufferings, we become more like him. When we suffer as Christians, we become more like our Savior. But this is only good news because the Son of God did not stay dead. His bloodied body did not remain on the cross, but he was placed in a grave. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead. He overcame the crushing weight of sin, defeated the sting of death, and crushed the devil with his lies. He was raised to life with a new glorious body with which he now sits at the right hand of the Father Almighty. The good news is that just as we share in Jesus' sufferings and death, we also share in his resurrection. That is, when we hear the final voice of our passage, it's the voice of Jesus when he stands alone before his disciples and he says to them, Arise, and do not be afraid. And like them, he also lays his hands on us to lift us up. Though Christ has ascended to heaven, he has sent us his Holy Spirit, the personal and palpable presence of God among us. Through him, we are made new creation. We are being renewed day by day as he breathes life into the dead and barren places of our lives. This is the glory of Christ's transfiguration and ultimately the glory of his resurrection from the dead. The glory that even through our sufferings, our temptations, and our painful death to sin in our life, we are being made new in him. I hope that you've heard the good news today. That God is with us here and now. That through the Holy Spirit, we are united to Christ in his sufferings, his death, and his resurrection. And that we are being transformed from glory to glory into the image of our Savior amidst both the mountaintops and the valleys of our life. But there will come a day when our glimpse of glory will become full, unhindered sight, when we will see our God face to face and we will know him fully, even as we are fully known. 
When at the trumpet blast, he will descend from heaven and we will be raised from the dead into glory and be transformed for eternity. We will see the one whose face, we are told in Revelation 1, is bright, shining like the sun. Sin and death and suffering will be no more and he will wipe every tear from our eyes. We will be among the great multitude of every tribe, nation, people, and tongue who are wearing robes that are washed white in the blood of the Lamb and crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Though our present lives are afflicted daily by sin and sickness and suffering, when we unite ourselves to Christ through faith, We are being washed in the blood of the Lamb. The Spirit is faithful to cleanse us, to sanctify us, to transform us day by day amidst the trials and temptations of life where we receive Christ anew, putting all of our hope in him. So let his light shine bright in our hearts as the Spirit transforms us from the inside out. And let us open our eyes in faith that even this day, we might gain a glimpse of glory, a glory that is now and forevermore. Amen. I'm going to invite John up for a final song. And as we do, I hope this can be a time of reflection and praise for you. Um, Just as we do each week, I want to invite you, if you'd like to take a a place at one of the altars, we would love that. The altar itself doesn't make a difference in your connection to God, but it's a place that you can come forward and just say, Lord, I am here, that the church can be with you and for you and see you. If you, for the first time, are wanting to know what it means to be united with Christ, For the first time to know that he has forgiven your sins and wants to give you his very own life, James would love to pray for you at this far uh, left altar. If you'd like prayers for healing, whether that be spiritual or emotional or physical healing, I would love to pray for you and anoint you down at this altar here. And if you're just feeling the spirit stir, in you, seeking for that deeper transformation, if you're wrestling with a sin in your life or a temptation or going through some manner of suffering, I invite you to come to these two altars and for others to come and pray for you. So we lift up these things and let's take a time for prayer and for worship now as we hear this song.